Hello, and welcome to episode number 146 of the Northern Miner podcast. I'm this week's host, Adrian Pocabelli, online editor of the Northern Miner. I also take care of most of the social media where you'll find sneak peeks, previews, and retweets of our friends in the mining industry. You can find us online at northernminer.com or on Twitter at Northern Miner and on Instagram at The Northern Miner and on Facebook and LinkedIn. So there's a lot going on out there with all the trade war talk, which is dominating the headlines. So let's visit our friends at infomine.com and take a brief look at metal prices, which are making some pretty interesting moves. Today on August 6th, gold is at a 52-week high of $1,462.80 per ounce. A year ago, gold was hovering in the $1,200 range. So the last 52 weeks have been good for gold investors. Silver is at $16.43 per ounce, and silver has been more volatile than gold in the last 52 weeks. A year ago, it was a little above $15 per ounce, then it dropped to $14, and then it went to $16 as 2019 began, and again dropped to about $14.50 this spring before launching above $16 to its current price of $16.43. So silver is living up to its reputation for volatility, and I imagine they're keeping the options traders happy. And what else? We have platinum, which is at $856.97 per ounce. We have palladium at $1,431.01 per ounce. Copper has gone the opposite way of gold, hovering at a 52-week low of $2.57 per pound. And crude oil is at $60.26 per barrel, a little below the midway point of its 52-week trading range. And looking at this week's front page of the newspaper, uh, we have a story with Pure Gold, where they raised $47.5 million for their Madsen Gold project in Ontario. A Pure Gold president and CEO, Darren LeBrentz, said, quote, We had an opportunity with the rising gold market and interest from a cornerstone investor that allowed us to move forward on an equity financing. The story goes on to say that the fundraising saw financier Eric Sprott acquire a little over 10% of the company by buying 36 million units for 55 cents each as part of a bought deal. Mining analyst Ryan Walker, who covers Pure Gold with Echelon Wealth Partners, wasn't that impressed with the timing of the financing. Quote, they may have jumped a little early and may have got a better deal had they waited, as it looks like we're in the early days of a major gold bull market. And judging from the last few days of trading, those criticisms are looking a little more present. You can also see on the front page the Barrick Acacia story, where Barrick sweetened their offer to Acacia Mining shareholders. And if you ever want to see the front page of the newspaper, I generally tweet it out on our social media channels on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And turning to the website, this was a week of delays, blockades, and cost overruns. Turquoise Hill stock price took a hit after they revised their numbers for Oyu Tolgoy. Oceana Gold is facing a government-inspired blockade at its Depidio gold mine in the Philippines. And a U.S. District Court for the District of Arizona has halted construction of Hud Bay's Rosemont Copper Molybdenum project. And this is not a small deal, as Hud Bay estimates that once in production, Rosemont, quote, would be the third largest copper mine in the U.S., accounting for 10% of the country's annual copper production. 
Finally, on the website, we have a new TNM Leaders segment for subscribers featuring Randy Smallwood of Wheaton Precious Metals, who shares his thoughts on time management, teamwork, and creativity. You can see a preview of TNM Leaders at northernminer.com slash TNM leaders. If you'd like to subscribe, just click on our subscription button at the top of the homepage, and you'll see our different subscription options. So moving on to today's feature, we're turning to one of the leading figures of the diamond space, Ira Thomas, CEO and president of Lacara Diamond, who spoke at the Northern Miners Canadian Mining Symposium in May. She was interviewed by Dean McPherson, head of business development for global mining at TMX Group. And it was a very interesting conversation. Ira Thomas has mentioned that she thinks the diamond sector particularly the junior to mid-tier diamond companies need to consolidate. But she did qualify that in this discussion, saying that M&A, quote, took years off my life. So she goes on to say how she was once involved in a hostile takeover and that she's not really that eager to go through that process again, as it's hard to keep all the shareholders happy. Sounds like it was quite the learning experience for her. Another interesting part of the conversation, which took me by surprise, was Lucera offers a dividend of 7%. And that doesn't seem like a typical diamond mining company type of dividend. So that's quite impressive. And it sounded like from the discussion that they're pretty intent on keeping it at 7%. So that's pretty impressive. And also, I mean, one of the things troubling the diamond space these days is this idea of synthetic diamonds. There is kind of a gloomy sentiment in the diamond sector as De Beers has launched their Lightbox synthetic diamond product. And this is sort of, I mean, one could, a pessimistic view would see this as an existential threat to the diamond industry. So Dean McPherson asked, Ira Thomas about this, and it was actually pretty interesting, her reply. It was a good reply, I thought, on a difficult question, because how do you defend that? The chatter at these mining events, I remember at PDAC, I mean, it's pretty gloomy. But Thomas basically said that both the synthetic diamond market and the natural diamond market are not the same, and they can coexist. And she basically compared it to, you know, she calls it fashion jewelry, and she basically compares it to being similar to a fake Gucci bag and that maybe if you're a young consumer and you can't afford the full-on Gucci bag, maybe you start with the fake Gucci bag as an entry-level product and eventually, once you have the means, you eventually get the real thing. Another interesting aspect that she argued for was that the synthetics are not a store of value like natural diamonds are. And she claimed that, you know, if you bought a synthetic for $5,000 five years ago, today it would be worth $800. So these are her numbers. I haven't looked at other numbers online, but it's an interesting argument. And she also said that the synthetic diamonds account for 3 to 5% of global jewelry consumption, which was also a very interesting point. I thought that was a huge number. Uh, three to five percent, and I mean, how long have synthetic diamonds been around? Like, it, not that long for them to already have three to five percent of the global jewelry consumption. It almost sounds too high, but if that's the case, to me, they are. That is a serious problem. But Thomas basically argued that, you know, maybe it'll go up a little bit more, but it's not going to replace the natural diamond industry. So I think the debate rages on. But you'll hear a very eloquent argument for 
natural diamonds in this podcast. So if you're a diamond person or just an investor in general, you're going to enjoy this. podcast is brought to you by the Yukon Mining Alliance. That's a group of juniors with mines and advanced projects in the Yukon. Check out their website at yukonminingalliance.ca and their Twitter feed at investyukon. We're going to take a small musical break and come back with our featured segment with Lucara Diamond President and CEO Ira Thomas. to jump right into it and, and get your opinion on the state of affairs in the diamond industry, and generally the mining industry, considering your background, you're probably one of the more qualified speakers today to give us an overview of what's happening. What are you seeing? What are you feeling? I think the common theme that we've heard a little bit this afternoon and generally in the marketplace is that the mining sector is, is a little bit unloved right now, but I think we've got a lot to be optimistic about. The reality is there's huge demand for all sorts of mined commodities, whether or not it's metals and minerals going into new technologies, or it's the energy that we use in our everyday life, or when it comes to things like luxury products and diamonds. If you believe in world GDP growth, then you have to believe in diamonds. So I think I'm very optimistic. I think we've got a lot of opportunity in the space right now, and you know, we have to get out there and convince a new investor base that this opportunity is one that they should be seizing today. Excellent. I love it. That's exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> <laughs> well, today has been, we've heard a lot of doom and gloom, and you often hear them, hear this tone these days in mining. So it's good to hear optimism and remind ourselves often of how vital the industry we're in. Mm. And the fundamentals do support that, certainly a return of investors eventually. So patience is required. Tell us about Lucara. Uh, exciting times? Very excited about where Lucara is going. You know, we've come through a big year of transition for the company. We've come through kind of an evolution. We've been in production since 2012, so we're in year seven. We've got a great asset in a great jurisdiction. Our mine is located in Botswana, and we have become well-known as one of the world's foremost producers of very large, high-value diamonds. And that has been a real advantage for Lucara as we start to think about where we want to go you know, strategically in the future. We have a product that is unique. It's well sought after, and it somewhat insulates us for some of the vagaries of, and volatility we see in the diamond uh, market, particularly for small diamonds, which have been under some pressure in the last couple of years. So for Lucara, we're really focused on a couple of key things. One is we're in the middle of a feasibility study looking to expand our mine underground. That has the potential to extend our mine life out to 2036 and beyond. And then the second piece of our business strategy is focused on a new business that we acquired about a year ago, which we call Clara Diamond Solutions. And 
This is not a mining opportunity, but it is a diamond opportunity, and it is a new technology. It's a digital sales platform that has the potential to completely transform the diamond supply chain. So that represents a significant growth opportunity for our company as well. So those are our two immediate focus areas, and we think this is a great time to be doing this. Excellent. Congrats are in order for uh, just a couple of weeks ago, I believe, I saw a press release about your recent discovery, the second largest uh, uncut. That's, that was amazing. Of course, the stock price reacted. Do you want to talk about that? A yeah, listen, we're, we're really pleased. One of the big differentiators for Lucara as a company and as a strategy, really, has been to really invest and incorporate innovation and technology into our into our mine design and into our approach in general. And so we were the first diamond mining company to in- incorporate XRT, diamond recovery technology. George talked about it in his presentation today. It's something that they're obviously looking to incorporate as well for STAR. And what's important about this technology is it has allowed us to recover these very large, high-value diamonds without damaging them. And of course, that's very important for value preservation. So our mine in four years has recovered two stones greater than 1,000 carats. The first one was the historic Lissetti Lorona, which weighed in at 1,109 carats. And it was purchased by Lawrence Graff in 2017. And he has recently finished polishing that, and that polished into a 302-carat modified princess-cut diamond, which is the highest clarity, highest quality diamond ever to be certified by the GIA. And then most recently, the 1,000 758 carat, which topped the Lissetti that you just spoke about. Although this one doesn't look as pretty as the Lissetti, and we're the first to admit that, it does have some nice white components. So we're, we're actually working now to analyze the stone and understand its full potential, but we think we've got at least a 400 carat uh, within which will generate significant revenue for the company. Awesome. Congrats again. Uh, this is obviously an example of technology paying off. Absolutely. Uh, the company adopting technology. And, and in recent times, over, certainly over the past two years, innovation and technology have certainly become buzzwords in mining as investors look for more from mining companies. You touched on Clara. Mm-hmm. I thought this was fascinating. I think it's probably one of the better examples I've seen of mining company adopting technology aggressively as not only uh, to help existing operations, but really taking it on as a potential, well, new revenue stream. Yeah. Uh, I know you're close to this project. Yes. No, we're very excited about Clara. You know, there's kind of two key aspects to Clara. One is around creating a more efficient marketplace. I mean, fundamentally, that's what it's about. The way we sell diamonds or transact diamonds hasn't changed in over 100 years. It's very inefficient. It's very inflexible. So Clara is positioned to change that. But the other piece is really around provenance. Consumers today really care about what they're consuming and where it comes from and how it was produced. That's been a common theme, I think, in the presentations today. We've talked a lot about ESG and sustainability in general. And the diamond marketplace has been deliberately opaque for a very long time. And Clara has the, you know, the ability now, and and really one of its primary purposes is to bring transparency. So we are tagging diamonds as they're produced in real time 
at the mine sites, and we are able to then follow them through this technology, enabled by blockchain, right through the value chain, ultimately to the point of final retail sale to that consumer. So I think that's a, a really important aspect of what we're bringing to the market, and you know, and a, industry needs cost yes. efficiency. Uh very much. Well. It, 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 you know, we can unlock, we believe, significant value. All of our test work has demonstrated unlocking throughout the value chain, some to the producer, some to the manufacturer, of about 18 to 23% over what we are currently achieving throughout the supply chain. So it's a significant win from a cost perspective and a margin perspective. And then it also has this added advantage of giving assurance to the consumer. What's the rollout uh, time like for Cloudera? Well, we're rolled out. So we acquired uh, the business a year ago, put it together with Lucara. That's when I took over as CEO. And we have been busy commercializing it, and we've now had four sales. We're ramping it up slowly. We have currently got 10 customers buying on Clara. These are the very large, integrated jewelry manufacturing houses around the world. And the feedback we're getting is overwhelmingly positive. So it is our intention before the end of the year to open up Clara to our fellow producers. And, and really for Lucara, that's a big part of our business strategy. Clara is a volume story. So we believe that our fellow producers will see the immediate benefits of selling on Clara. Not only will they realize higher prices for their diamonds, but they will be selling their diamonds basically in real time. Today, current producers only sell their diamonds either every five weeks, or in the case of Lucara, we sell our diamonds once a quarter because we're a relatively small producer. So there's a lot of benefits that come through selling on Clara. Okay, excellent. Shifting gears a bit, earlier we had Mark Bristow here and we had a few companies and a few CEOs talking about the M&A trend in mining. Yeah. And I know you've had experience in this. You were CEO of Kamenak that mm -hmm. was acquired by Goldcorp. And you've stated actually last year that M&A is a big part of your strategy going forward. I thought you could shed some light, one, on your M&A activity and you know, update as to what you're doing, what you can say anyway. As sure. far as, um, and, and generally your opinion nothing, about what's happening <laughs> in the industry. <laughs> Well, <laughs> I'm happy to talk well, about that a little bit. Right. No, you know, listen, I mean, my first, I've had a lot, actually a lot of M&A transactions over my career, including one hostile uh, takeover many years ago that I vowed never to ever repeat. But, you, you know, the, I think... You were the target or the acquirer? No, no, I was actually the acquirer, but it was such a long, drawn-out process, it took years off my life. So I first state that. I have no interest in doing hostile takeovers. No, I, I listen, I think there's there's a time and place for M&A. And, you know, M&A is notoriously difficult to do and to, to do and create value for all the shareholders. So, you know, I think we're coming to a point, certainly in the diamond sector, where this is a space that's very small and, you know... It's, it's been a difficult time for a lot of the, the junior producers in particular. And when Dominion got taken over by Washington Group, that was the sort of premier investable mid-tier company. So that, I really think, took a lot of energy out of the space and, and that we're left with a bunch of junior companies now that are really not investable in terms of their size. So I think if there was ever a time, uh, you know, I think we're getting to that point where it does make sense to put these pieces together. But, you know, for Lucara, challenges, we have a very 
very high margin asset. We've got two growth projects in the pipeline that we're very excited about. And, you know, our immediate focus is on executing on those those organic growth projects that we have in our portfolio. But of course, we're continuously looking. We think that that is the prudent thing to be doing. And we do think that the, the sector generally does need some consolidation. And at, at some point, we believe that will happen. Do you find that your investors are pushing or clamoring or asking for M&A activity or... What's this mood like from an investor side? It's interesting for us because we are a dividend payer. We've been paying a dividend since 2014. We're the first diamond company to initiate a dividend policy, and we've paid out $256 million in dividends, which is far in excess of the money we invested to build our project. The dividend currently yields 7%. We have cash on our balance sheet and no debt. So we've got investors that really own this story for that dividend, and they're very sensitive to that dividend, so including our chairman, who is the largest shareholder, who particularly likes his dividend. So I think the key message there for us is that whatever we do, it has to be creative. It has to make sense. It has to, it has to add obvious value to our company and to our for, and for our shareholders. Are you looking to, if you do, look, uh, are you looking at, in terms of jurisdiction, are you looking at Canada, are you looking at uh, Botswana, wider Africa? Yeah, listen, I think because it's such a small space, we we really can't be too restrictive in our criteria. So I would say we, we look broadly, but of course we risk rank everything we look at on the basis of geological potential, political jurisdiction, overall geological quality, of course. So all of that gets factored into our analysis, but I wouldn't say that any jurisdiction is completely off limits for us. Obviously, we're more comfortable in jurisdictions like Botswana. That would be our first choice. But obviously, Canada's not a bad choice either. Yeah, certainly so. The diamond industry, the diamond sector, subsector, has uh, last year got a bit of shock, I guess, when the Bears uh, announced their lightbox uh, project or lightbox jewelry. It's tempting to see this as a, a negative event for miners. How do you see it? You know what? I'm actually really excited about it. I think it was a very positive development for the industry. I think it clearly serves to differentiate the two markets. The synthetic diamond market is not the same as the natural diamond market, and they can coexist. Right now, synthetics account for 3 to 5% of global jewelry consumption, and that probably will grow somewhat, but we don't see that encroaching into the natural diamond market, particularly for purchases related to those important commemorative lifestyle, life moments rather. And, you know, the reality is that a synthetic diamond that you would have purchased maybe five years ago for, say, $5,000 would be worth less than $800 today, so less than a cell phone. So there's no store of value in a synthetic diamond. Rather, synthetic diamonds really are filling a niche around fashion jewelry, and we see it almost as an entry-level opportunity for consumers. And I think for the women in the audience, they'll appreciate that, you know, when you're a young girl aspiring to own, you know, your first designer handbag, no, you're not going to be out, you know, buying that until you probably 
have a few paychecks under your belt, but that doesn't mean that you don't aspire. So you may go off and buy that fake Gucci handbag on 42nd Street in New York. That doesn't mean it diminishes your appetite for the real thing when you have the opportunity to afford it. And the another analogy I use is is thinking about how we consume luxury products. I, I think everyone can appreciate that as consumers we have aspirations, and we may have that designer, you know, whether it's a suit or a, you know that Chanel handbag sitting in our closets. But at the same time, we own Zara and we own The Gap. Um, it's yeah. a continuum, and right. they're not mutually exclusive. So certainly that's how we see synthetics and natural diamonds playing together in this market. And because of the fundamental challenge of cost of synthetics has come down so dramatically, those diamonds can never be resold for what they were purchased for. And I think De Beers is you know, clearly standing up and making a statement that this is the case. Yes, I think that's a great analogy that you brought with retail luxury market. Very interesting. I wanted to quickly, before we wrap up, we're getting close to time, is I wanted to ask you a little bit about the ESG movement. You started in mining uh, over 20 years ago. But um, things of, at that time when you started, the focus was certainly was not, was not very high on stuff like diversity and, and ESG in general. So I wanted to get your perspective and what are you feeling in terms of changes that you've seen from the time that you started as a geologist in exploration and mining? What, what are, you, are you optimistic about that next generation of leaders, uh, as the panel spoke about earlier? You know, I'm very optimistic. I, I think we have to be a little bit patient, but I also share the frustration that it hasn't happened quick enough. I think but there was a couple of comments on the previous panel. You know, what we've seen is that diverse companies are generally more profitable companies, are more successful companies. So I think that is becoming very apparent. And, you know, for us at Lucara, you know, we're very proud of the fact we're actually 80% women in our senior leadership team. We have... Founded by uh, quite a number of women. Yes, <laughs> yes. And uh, two partners in the original in the original founders. Catherine McLeod is also a founder of Lucara. And something we're also very proud of is the fact that we have the first female Botswana woman running our diamond company in Botswana. And she's the first female leader to run a mining company in Botswana period, and so that's something we're certainly very proud of, and we're also proud of the fact that, you know, 98% of our employees are Botswana, and we have no expats in our leadership team in Botswana at all. So this is something that we have embraced as an opportunity, and it's clearly paying off for us. We just reported our Q1 results. The mine has never been stronger. We're actually hitting record production through the plant, and this is the best production quarter we've had in seven years of, of running this operation. We are exceeding guidance with, you know, ore and carrots produced, and we're doing it safely. We've just recorded our second full year without a lost time incident at our mine. So all of these things contribute to better performance, and I think Lucara is a really good example of that. And so we see the benefits. We continue to push forward and on that basis. And uh, to, for us, it's a no-brainer. Excellent. Now, congratulations. I've noticed that your diversity program, your ESG program in general, is quite impressive. Before we wrap up, I wanted to give you the last word. Do you have anything you want investors to take away? Well, listen, I, I think back to the way we opened this, which is, you know, how do we how do we feel about this space right now? I think there is this sort of sense of, uh, not quite doom and gloom, but certainly this feeling that this is a sector that's unloved, and I agree with that, but I think we've got to turn that energy around, you know, as, as leaders in the industry and as companies. I think we've got a great story to tell. We've got to get out there and tell the story, and we've got to do it to a broader audience than kind of the, you know, our tendency is to sort of preach to ourselves 
themselves and the converted. And I think that's a huge opportunity. Canada is, has got a great story to tell. The mining industry in Canada has a great story to tell. And we, we, need, we need to get on with that. does it for this episode of the Northern Miner podcast. As always, you can help the podcast by giving us a review or by liking, subscribing, and sharing it online. All these things help raise the profile of the podcast and raise it in the Apple podcast directory. And let's give one last thank you to our longtime sponsor, Yukon Mining Alliance. And that's all for now. Until next week, take care.